Welcome to the 35th episode of the Known Pleasures podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss the post-punk and new wave movements from the late 70s and early 80s. In the episode description, you will see a link to a Spotify playlist that's been created just for this episode. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Pleasures Known. Now, I believe it's my turn to introduce the... Oh, um, excuse me. Hello? I'm in the phone booth. At the legendary CBGBs in New York in the mid-70s, I think it's fair to say that Blondie were outliers. Still, they took enough from the attitudes and performances of their punk contemporaries to create a style of idiosyncratic pop that made them stand out from the crowd. And while they dipped their collective toes into many different genres, there was always a distinctive Blondie element. An element that on the periodic table would appear as Blondinium, and it would surely have the highest atomic number. And standing out front was a lead singer who may well have changed the way female vocalists performed from that day forward. Whether she was distant and aloof, sly and ironic, or screaming into a receiver, she paved the way for women in the future to take control, perform with power and aggression, and never once deny or apologize for their sexuality. I won't keep you hanging on the telephone any longer. Here's our Blondie podcast in the flesh. Nice. I just get a nice for that. <laughs> Mark, what do you think? I, Pretty good. I poured over that for ages. <laughs> Pretty good. So where do we start with the Blondie story, Patty? Is it oh. one of your patented back, 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 way back stories? <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing about Blondie and about Debbie Harry, I suppose, is that she was a mature age singer by the time Blondie got anywhere. So, yes, wasn't she about 30 or something? Or yeah, yeah. So yeah. she was born in 1945, which mm. is not that long after, you know, the younger members of the Beatles. Mm. She was of that generation. And uh, yeah, she was born in Miami, but adopted by a couple in Hawthorne, New Jersey. And the most riveting thing that I could find about Hawthorne, New Jersey <laughs> is that it was named after the novelist Nathaniel Hawthorne. That's as good as it got for me with my research. <laughs> Who we're all familiar with. There was nothing else? <laughs> I've never heard of him. One of very few towns, I suspect, in the States that was named after a novelist. So I think there's something to be said for that. But it was kind of a like, small town... New Jersey, but within about like 25, 30 miles of New York City. So it was an interesting kind of combination of those kind of two lifestyles. She couldn't wait to leave Hawthorne, but it took her until she was age 20 to move to New York to be an artist, but she didn't actually get to paint much. She got a job working as a secretary for the BBC. That's so weird. Mm, for, the, for the BBC in, in New, New York. York. Yeah. <laughs> and she'd go and see bands. This was like the mid, mid-60s-ish, mid Velvet Underground, Janis Joplin, Ornette Coleman, and she was you know, right in the midst of all this stuff. And her first band was at some of the local happenings. And as she says, she sang a bit or chanted and banged some percussion instrument or another. <laughs> Doesn't it sound good? Was this The Wind in the Willows? Or uh, prior, to, prior to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Graham, are you a Wind in the Willows expert? Can you talk us through the Wind <laughs> no, in the Willows really. era? Well, all I can tell you is that they were kind of a psychedelic folk kind of combo. Uh, on listening to it now, it sounds a lot like the Mamas and the Papas. That was probably what they were aiming for. Walls, walls, so 
And if you ever see Debbie Harry on the cover of the album, she looks like a hippie. So I imagine this was a look and a persona that she probably tried to deny later on. But yeah, I guess she was old enough to be a part of that uh, that scene. Yeah, yeah. Well, she she graduated from the banging some percussion instrument or another at the happenings to joining Wind in the Willows. Mm. They released an album, 1968, um, self-titled. As she describes it, she mostly stood down the back singing, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> but good training. <laughs> she did a lot of ooze within Blondie. A lot, so. yeah. So that's, yeah, that's yeah. where it started. Yeah, no, that's right. And she worked as a waitress at Max's Kansas City, the famous place to be seen. And mm-hmm. she uh, and Hendrix and Warhol, Miles Davis, Jane Fonda, all those kind of people were, were, were hanging out there. She did lots of drugs, as again was the fashion at the time. Then she infamously, both famously and infamously, became a uh, Playboy bunny. That's right. Which involved a lot of training in learning... A, about um, the proper serving of drinks. And wearing ears. And yeah, Serving yeah. drinks whilst wearing ears. Yeah. So when was she go-go dancing in between oh. those two gigs? I don't... Do you graduate from Playboy Bunny to go-go dancing or the other way around? I don't know. Was mm. there go-go dancing There involved? was go-go dancing really? definitely in there, yes. Wow, I've I missed got that. That's three of her former I must have been uh, distracted jobs. while I was reading that chapter. You missed that. Maybe you just blocked it out. Yeah, yeah. So after Playboy, she went back home with a tail between her legs? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Had you been storing that one up? No, I, I just thought of it then. <laughs> God damn it. Look, it's not written down anyway. <laughs> They're the best ones, Graham. Shall we jump ahead to the stilettos? Yes, yes. Do well, you want to talk Chris us through Stein, the uh, stilettos? Well, well, Chris Stein was five years younger than Debbie. He was born in 1950. So he, uh, I think uh, Debbie was already in a band called the Stilettos singing uh, either lead vocal or maybe back up. I'm not 100% sure. But um, Chris got himself in there somehow, part of the scene, as you say, and um, was the guitarist. Yep. Quickly formed a romantic uh, attachment with Debbie. Why wouldn't you? Hmm. That was in uh, early 70s? 73. 73, yeah. yeah. And then I think they both decided, well, we can do our own thing and kind of, and left pretty quickly. Uh, in 74 to form mm, yeah. their own group. Debbie was obsessed with the New York Dolls, you know, the kind of glam punk band of that era. And she didn't just want to be in the New York Dolls, you know, she wanted to be the New York Dolls. She oh, wanted really? to, and she was friends with them. She used to drive them around and she was part of that kind of inner circle. Mm. And so Blondie was formed more or less with that kind of intention with Chris Stein and they gradually accumulated other Blondie members. Well, yeah, because the lineup is not the classic lineup at this stage. It's Debbie, Chris, Gary Valentine. Mm. Yep. Clem Burke is around, also born in the mid-50s. He's no youngster. Jimmy Destry, mid-50s, another guy that had been around a while on keyboards. And uh, I have their first gig in October 74 at CBGB's. I don't know whether whether you have that. Yeah, so that's right in the midst of what's famously now the New York punk or pre-punk scene. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The funniest thing about them being part of that is that you've got Talking Heads, Ramones, Television, Blondie, the four bands everybody talks about, CBGBs, but they're probably the most unusual (laughs) of those four bands that kind of pretty much on their own in that sense. Yeah, yeah. That they had a real 60s sound, like almost a throwback Mm. sort of girl group sound Mm. to me, the early stuff. But obviously I think it was kind of a rejection of what was going on at the time. People talk about the CBGB's thing as like we want to go back to the basics of rock and roll rather than the, you know, the, the art rock, the various kind mm. of eagles and so on things yeah. that were happening. So the, whatever it was was acceptable as long as it was kind of fairly basic and simple. So I suppose those yeah. four bands all kind of fit that 
criteria. They, they were definitely the most melodic of those of those bands. Well, I think they had the most training, probably, as in Chris had been around a while. She'd been singing quite a while. All of them were reasonably proficient comparatively as musicians at mm. that stage. Yeah. But, um, yeah, well, look, they kicked around there for a couple of years, but they got attention fairly quickly, having said that. Yeah. They got noticed yep. pretty quickly. Yeah, well, they recorded a uh, demo in 1975, which featured a song called The Disco Song, which we'll be speaking about later on. AKA. AKA something else. Something else. <laughs> and then are we on to their first single? I think so. I think I think we should. They kind of broke out of there really quite quickly. Mm. I was kind of impressed to see how fast that had happened for them. They were picked up. They were seen that a demo was produced, I think, and uh, the guy that uh, Richard Gotterer, yep, who had a, a label there, his own label. He had um, quite a girl group pedigree, didn't he? He he wrote My Boyfriend's Back and I Want Candy. Mm. He was in the band The Strange Loves who played I Want Candy. Oh, really? Yeah, he also wrote Hang On Sloopy. Yeah. He also formed Sire Records. Yeah, with Seymour Stein oh, later yeah, on. Yeah. But he had his own group yeah. label at that point. Did you see the uh, backstory to The Strange Loves? They were around at the time of the British invasion, 64, 65, and they kind of wanted to get onto that bandwagon. You know, they were an American band, but they didn't think they could pull off the English accent. So they decided to pretend to be Australian. <laughs> And it's the same thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Be- because, as they said, no one, no one knew, no one had ever met an Australian <laughs> in the US, so they thought they could probably get away with what, that. So, Rolf Harris wasn't a superstar in the US. You're telling me this. <laughs> now I, I hear this. I believe not. <laughs> wow. I believe not. Okay. But, um, yeah, so their media releases went out with them. They were allegedly um, three brothers named Giles, Miles, and Niles Strange. <laughs> <laughs> and. They were sheep farmers. I'm not making this up. They were sheep farmers who'd made their fortune by developing a new form of sheep crossbreeding. <laughs> That's a complicated this, backstory. This was supposed to be like a backdrop to like sexy young pop stars. <laughs> it was, it was, yeah, I'm not sure how long they, they maintained that facade. But yeah, the song I Want Candy yeah. was allegedly written by three sheep farmers from Australia. <laughs> I just absolutely love that story. It's great. What sheep farmer doesn't want candy? <laughs> Especially the Aussie ones. Um, so, I, I should mention that label was called Private Stock as well, mm, that the, the, mm. their first uh, recordings were done on. So, um, are yeah. we going to go to that first album? Yes, indeed. Yes. Can I just kick off by saying that um, Debbie Harry's history with the Stilettos gave that first album a real girl group kind of sound. Mm. There was a fair bit of the Renettes in there and the Shirelles and a bit of Phil Spector. There were, there were songs with intros that had monologues, you know, a la Leader of the Pack. I saw you standing on the corner. You look so big and fine. I really wanted to go out with you. So when you smiled, I laid my heart on the line. Well, I think that was Richard Gotterer as well. Obviously, yeah. that was his thing. Maybe mm. that was where they saw the common yeah. ground. But but having said that, with all of its girl group feel and sound, there still was a bit of CBGBs yeah, in, in yeah, there. Yeah. Like Rip It to Shreds, for instance, was, was quite an aggressive sound. I can't imagine a girl group singing a song like that. Mm. And You Wanted the Love of a Sex Offender is, is, is not a line. <laughs> that, Those lyrics are pretty funny if you read them yeah. about a prostitute being arrested by mm. a police officer. This is the first single, Ex Offender. Yeah, yeah. And then um, falling in love with him. You had to admit you wanted 
but the lyrics are kind of quite dodgy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Debbie wrote almost all the lyrics for Blonde. Yeah. From, from I thought one. she was a great lyricist. I thought some of them were really funny. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about this later, but I think her lyrics are really interesting in that she tends to write from a almost a masculine perspective. She's mm. never a, a victim or never waiting. She's quite aggressive in mm-hmm. her, when she's talking about things, or even some of the terminology she uses. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's a really interesting angle that she's taken. But yeah, okay, we've got three singles on this album. Uh, the Blondie album, December 1976. And regarding the 50s and 60s vibe, Ellie Greenwich, or Greenwich? Yes. A uh, friend of Gotterer sang backing mm-hmm. vocals on uh, In the Flesh. Oh, um, okay. And uh, she had she was the co-writer of To Do Ron Ron, Be My Baby, mm. and Then He Kissed Me. So, mm. <laughs> you know, that was the kind of pedigree coming in on the backing vocals of, you know, in the flesh, and, and I think she was maybe- a, a brill building songwriter. Mm. She was she was part of that whole crew. Yeah, 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 absolutely. What I wanted to say about these these first recordings is that they really are a bit of a throwback, which is which differentiates them from what was going on in the UK mm. at this time. That it's really about the rejection of current rock and roll to go backwards rather than forwards, which mm. the English yeah, bands yeah. really were looking for the future. It's almost why there's not really even an American post punk scene because there is a small amount of it, but they didn't break out to mm. go somewhere it was all looking quite backwards mm. you know looking to the velvets or the, or the 60s bands and yeah, that sort yeah. of thing i mean there's even a track on the first album called shark in jets clothing Which is like West Side Story. Yeah, West Side you guys Story. have been watching too many you know, musicals <laughs> yeah. from the 50s. Yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. And there's kind of a Happy Days vibe about some of the, absolutely. the visuals. And I know that was massive in that well, time. Have you seen the Ex-Offender video? Yeah. She's dressed up like uh, from Greece, like with the, yeah, with the pink. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. That whole Happy yeah. Days thing, American graffiti yeah, and Happy yeah, Days yeah. was a massive trend at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they, they weren't the only ones doing that either. Yeah. When you think of bands... Of that era with the kind of money they had available, you imagine them recording the album in a really dingy basement somewhere, but they recorded it at a place called Plaza Sound, which was a studio above Radio City Music Hall in the same grand kind of deco building. Mm. And the studio had been built for the NBC Symphony Orchestra. (laughs) So that's how big it was. (laughs) And again, it seemed to encourage that kind of retro vibe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really interesting album with the kind of juxtapositions of the... The well, they consider themselves a punk new wave band. That's yeah, what I yeah, don't yeah. quite understand. I mean, a song like Ex Offender, I can see Ripper to Shreds, I can see. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. second single, In the Flesh, which I'm going to talk about in a second, yeah. has no bearing at all on any new wave punk thing that I can no, find. No, no. It's a basic ballad, 60s style yeah, ballad. Yeah, that's right. You know, it could have been on Happy Days. Uh, Richie and Potsy. Ralph yeah. Mouth could have th- been playing this. I think this. they actually played it. Yeah, I think they might have done a version of this. <laughs> yeah, um, I was I was picturing the, the kind of Happy Days thing. Yeah. And either Pinky or Leather Tuscadero <laughs> um, just, you know, just playing it at, um, at what was Arnold's. It? Arnold's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you could always get a gig at Arnold's. <laughs> yeah. Just, well, just a quick hello to our younger listeners here. <laughs> no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> happy Days. Everyone knows Everyone Happy Days. Everyone knows Happy Days. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Fonz, two words. That's all you need to know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, that's right. Uh, well, well, uh, Chris did. Chris Stein did say that "Ripper to Shreds" was an homage to um, uh, "I'm Waiting for the Man" by Velvet Underground. So that was that was a slightly later reference.
But Debbie said it was more about what the tabloids and the media do to people, mm, which I mm. thought was interesting because she wasn't famous then anyway. So yeah, I'm yeah, not quite right. sure how she would reference that. But the lyrics are great. It's just a bitchy kind of thing. Maybe she's talking about what people said about her. That's what I thought. Mm. Here she comes. Look, who does she think she is kind of thing? Because she yeah. would have been attracting a lot of attention from men oh, absolutely. Um, as the lead, the beautiful lead singer and also negative female attention mm. and being bitchy about it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, can I talk about... The first time, and I don't know whether you guys have got a different story, but the first time I ever heard or saw In the Flesh. So I was 12, going on 16 at that age. <laughs> I remember distinctly one afternoon, it was afternoon TV in Australia. It wasn't Countdown, it wasn't the regular show. It was a daytime show in the afternoon. My friend and I were watching TV and this video came on for this song, In the Flesh by Blondie. And, you know, we'd been around, we'd seen a few things, we'd yeah, done a yeah, lot, yeah. 12, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. pretty experienced guys. <laughs> Men of the world. Men of the world. <laughs> we had never seen anything like this. Mm. When we saw Debbie Harry literally in the flesh singing this song, we were just like jaws hit the ground. We didn't really know what was going on. I think I got a funny feeling in my tummy, that's all I remember. <laughs> but I was, yeah, I was 12, but when the third verse of In the Flesh kicks in with a particularly effusive darling... I think I fell in love with a 32-year-old woman at that point, mm, mm. and that was it. I didn't know what was going on, but it was just absolutely <laughs> gobsmacking. And right. that song went on to be a massive hit in Australia um, before they had any success anywhere. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I think there was a copy of the single p- purchase. I think we all passed it around. Like, you might have it for a week, and I'd have yeah. it for a week, that kind of thing. I don't know what, what, what was going on with it, but um, it had a big impact. Is yeah, what I'm yeah, yeah. Say. You, you, weren't, you weren't alone, I don't think. Well, I, I, most, well, I was some of the time. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, in the flesh, um, number two in Australia. And, yeah, and, yeah. and I didn't, I'd never heard of, as far as I know, I hadn't heard of punk or new wave or anything. Well, isn't, isn't there an point. interesting story? Patrick, about how Australia got to see this particular well, this, song? Yeah, there is yeah. an interesting story, but no one seems to be 100% sure no, of its no. accuracy. No. Do you want to take it, Graham? Well, I think uh, Ian Meldrum met up with the members of Blondie in New York. He'd seen them supporting um, Iggy Pop, Iggy Iggy Pop Iggy and Pop, David yeah. Bowie yeah. in Chicago. So which which would have been great in itself. Great in itself, mm. exactly. So they wound up getting the video for Ex Offender and In the Flesh yep. to him. He brought them back to Australia. He was meant to play Ex Offender on the Countdown show. Given that it was the A-side of the single. Given that yes. it was the A-side <laughs> of the single. And... Whether it was intentional or not, they played In the Flesh. Yeah. Which seemed to be, particularly for an Australian audience, a, a bit more of an accessible song. I think for any audience it would yeah. have been at that time in 76, mm. 77, whenever this is. Yeah. So consequently, that was the video that was played and the Australian public really ate it up. Yeah, it was their first hit anywhere in the world and I think it got to number two in Australia. Yeah, number mm. two. Maybe. And the film clip, I have to say, it's interesting seeing the ex-offender film clip and the In the Flesh film clip. And the In the Flesh film clip, they're all wearing black mm. and they look absolutely amazing as, as an ensemble. Mm. Yeah. If you think of the kinds of things that were on Australian television at the time, it was still very kind of glam. Mm. So even bands like ACDC in their early incarnations looked more like a glam band than the kind of hard rocking outfit they became subsequently. Mm. So, yeah, it was all about the kind of loud colours and Blondie wore loud colours in the A side, Mm. the ex-offender single. 
Mm. But in the flesh, they just looked. They look fantastic, didn't they? Yeah, it's just yeah. an amazing so looking band. Strange is Chris Stein plays bass on one track and guitar on another. Mm. I know. Well, I know that he did play a bit of bass, but in the two videos, yes, he, in Ex Offender, Gary swapped. Valentine's playing guitar. Yeah. Yes, I don't know why they did that. Um, but yeah, that that album uh, was was a success for them. Number fourteen in Australia, it reached, which is pretty impressive. Mm. Yeah, did yeah. nothing in the states. And precipitated a tour, an Australian tour yep. in December 1977 mm. of, of that year. I have a little information on the fact that there was the Brisbane show was was cancelled and there was a, a small scale riot. Yeah, there was. But what happened was it's the end of 1977, okay? And it was announced that both Iggy Pop and Blondie were touring in December. Um, there was a lot of anticipation about it because Blondie were touring off the back of a hit single and Iggy Pop was touring off the back of David Bowie. <laughs> That's another story. (laughs) That's another story altogether. (laughs) So Iggy's concert was the 3rd of December and Blondie was the 8th of December. Now, I was only 15, so I could only afford to go to one. So Uh I chose Iggy Pop. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And it was the Lust for Life tour. So I don't know if you remember that the Sales Brothers, who played that iconic drums and bass at the beginning of Lust for Life, that Jet stole years later. They were touring with him, so it was a pretty big deal. And my friends and I rocked up to the uh, Festival Hall box office one Saturday morning. It was really early to make sure we got great seats. And um, we did notice that while we are at six in the morning, we were the first in line. Six in the morning? At six in the morning. Wow. But by the time... Still going from Friday night, I eh, grant. <laughs> <laughs> by the time the box office opened at 9am, we were still the only people there. <laughs> so we got there first You got the up, best seats. But no reason. We got front row seats. Absolutely, yeah. Front row 60, we were so excited about that, but our excitement at getting front row seats was short-lived as the concert was cancelled due to poor ticket sales. So I didn't get to see you, Pop, and I couldn't get tickets to Blondie because they'd all sold out because of great ticket sales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... um. But you didn't miss out in the end because they didn't go ahead with that gig. Well, the actual gig was postponed until later. But I just wanted to say that, uh, like I said, Blondie were making their first appearance at uh, Her Majesty's Theatre. Um, there was about 1,200 people there. And then at some point, Clem Burke came out on the stage and said that uh, Blondie might be able to play because Debbie Harry was sick. Mm. And the reason that they gave was that she overdosed on cherries. Mm. But cherry might have been slang for something else. (laughs) Well, I know you guys are aware that in rock and roll we've lost a lot of great people to stone fruits. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's the number one killer of rock stars. (laughs) We lost Jim Morrison to nectarines, for instance. You know, it's just, it's it's been peaches did Sid Vicious in. (laughs) That's right. So the the story was that, and this came from the tour manager, I think, uh, New York had fruit, apparently, but in Australia, we, we really had the good stuff. So, um, <laughs> so once again, is this we're not talking about fruit here, are we? Really? No, no, well, this is it. It was all pure. <laughs> You've got to un- go to Australia un- for the good stuff. <laughs> it's pure, uncut fruit. Uncut, no stems, <laughs> no stems. Skin on, it'll knock your socks off. Pure maraschino. <laughs> but um, so everyone must have bought that excuse. But I, I just think that's hilarious. Yeah, I, I don't buy that. I don't how did, buy that. How did cherry sales go during the subsequent weeks? <laughs> you couldn't weeks? get cherries. I mean, oh, they were expensive. No. The great but cherry drought of 78. You know what? what's funny about that tour also is that if you'd bothered to go to um, Queensland's Great Keppel Island, you could have seen them eight nights in a row, apparently. According to the tour schedule, they played one night after the other for eight nights at Great Keppel Island. But <laughs> it's, Well, it's put down as a gig, but I'm assuming they just went there for a while. Well, the same thing happened. 
that, that story that made you very bitter about the police, Mark. Which one? <laughs> Where they cancelled their Brisbane concert. Again, they cancelled Brisbane. And out, right yeah. after that, there was like eight nights in a row at Great Keppel Island. So yeah. it must have been what, what people did at the time. Yeah, that's they just, right. They just went and did a lounge gig at Great Keppel Island. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is a resort in Queensland. Wow, that's extraordinary. Um, there was a riot, as yes. you say, at the... Uh, a I door was removed. A stage yeah. door was yeah. pulled off its hinges. Hmm. Cherries will drive you crazy. They give you super strength. <laughs> Was the entire audience on cherries? I think so. Possibly. I think a lot of fruit stands in the area were closed, subsequently closed down. <laughs> because of it. Okay, well, we haven't milked this one dry at all. <laughs> yeah. um, I just want to mention also that Clinton Walker was in the front row of the Brisbane riot. The only reason why I mention that is because I read a little article, because he wrote an article about the Brisbane riot after the blow. Oh, because cost. he was a music journalist, Clinton Walker. Mm. You don't know Clinton Walker? Yeah, yeah, I do. I just oh, you were talking our, about... Our audience. Our audience. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, deep down, it is just the three of us here, Graham, but... Yeah. The music journalist, Clinton Walker, <laughs> yeah. he wrote an article about it. I just wanted to mention that he spoke about Molly Meldrum liking the In The Flesh single, and he started playing it on Countdown. But in that same show, he held up the Ramones album... And he called them the Ram Ones. <laughs> oh, cool. That is actually a better name. <laughs> the Ram Ones. I like but it. When I thought about it, I says, yeah, it actually it does say Ram Ones. That's cool. <laughs> I never heard that. I never heard that I love either. That. Yeah, the yeah, that's Ram great. Ones. I wish I'd seen that. I, I actually tried searching it online. I couldn't find it. John, Johnny, Joey, DD, Ram Ones. Ram Ones. <laughs> <laughs> Gold. <laughs> oh, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's, hey, all, that's all I've got that's on the Brisbane Riots. That's not bad. So that's the first album. Okay, so mm. we've just got the barest 20 minutes on Blondie in Brisbane, 977. <laughs> that's right. Yes. Uh, the podcast is just about ready to wind up and we've got on the first <laughs> album. Shall we move on to Plastic Letters? February yes. 1978, the second album. Mm. With a member shed. A member shed and a member gained. Mm. Gary Valentine, the mm-hmm. bass player. Is no more. Part songwriter had left he talked about forming his own band during their first european tour and the band's manager said well how about we kick you out first so that's what happened and if you're worried about gary valentine who wrote a single Mm. of the subsequent album i'm always touched by your presence dear Mm. if you're worried about what became of gary he reverted to his original surname lockman and under the name of gary lockman he became a full-time writer and he has subsequently published about 20 books on consciousness, the counterculture, and the influence of the occult and esoteric thought on mainstream Western culture. And in the lyrics, I'm getting a little bit ahead of us, but the lyrics of I'm Always Touched by Your Presence, Dear, among the lyrics are floating past the evidence of possibilities, we could navigate together psychic frequencies. Later on, coming into contact with outer entities, we could entertain each other with our theosophies. So <laughs> there, there were hints there about... <laughs> so uh, he was wasted playing bass in a rock and roll band. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. That's right. So anyway, don't cry for Gary. He's, he's done okay. Can I just say about that song, I like Gary Valentine. And, and mm. Don't get you wrong. Yeah, don't get me wrong. Yeah. I don't want to badmouth Gary. But I never liked that song in that it sounded like he came up with the title... I'm always touched by your presence, dear. And he kind of awkwardly crammed it in, into a song. Yeah, yeah. So every time I hear that chorus, it just doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem to flow very well. Yeah, oh, yeah I like the chorus. I'm going to yeah. disagree with you there. I think it's a cracker. Oh, yeah? Listening to it again. Oh, yeah. Well, if that's it, I'm going to cut you out of this Okay, bit. I'm gone. <laughs>
it is a lot of syllables to try and sort of squeeze in together and and get the emphasis of the syllables within each word right. Yeah, that, those sorts of things. So by your presence, dear. Yeah, yeah, I know. It just it, doesn't yeah, seem yeah. to work for me. Yeah, I know what you mean. Should we talk about? I agree with both of you about that. Oh, Should nice. we talk about uh, with him leaving at Frank Infante joint? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Uh, but I think Chris played bass. On a lot of this album, but on the subsequent Plastic Letters album, I think. Yeah, he did. yeah. Well, Frank Infante played bass on some of it, but um, yeah, February '78. So pretty quick work getting and again a second with, album. With Richard Gotterer. Richard Gotterer again. Uh, now Denis was a hit in the UK and a hit in Australia. Quite similar in that kind of poppy '60s way. Denis is a cover of Randy and the Rainbows, 1963. A song called Denise. Yes, so they changed it slightly and made it a little Frenchy, Frenchified it mm, as yeah, well. Yeah. And it got to number two in the UK, number 12 in Australia, Denis. Yeah, so... they were doing quite well in the UK and Australia. I mean, the album hit 64 and top 10 in the UK. Yeah. A little bit of a was, mark in the US. Was, was there a French lyric in it? In, in Denis, yes. Yeah. In the past, Patrick, you've always given us a wonderful rendition of French lyrics. I thought you might be able to do these. If the lyrics were in front of me, I'd have a bash. <laughs> oh, we can get them for you. It's okay. <laughs> I um, I think this this album is is like basically probably the same as you guys are going to say. It's part two of the first album. Mm, it's yeah. it's looking back rather than forward again. Very power pop. A bit more keyboards. Jimmy yep. Destry's keyboards come yep. to the fore. I, I'd almost call that a lesser version of the first LP. I actually didn't like this album at all. I liked Denis. There's a couple of other songs that I didn't mind, but it was a continuation of the first album. Yeah. The first side, as we used to say back in those days, mm-hmm. is pretty good. The second side's a little bit, uh, eh. Uh, I do like I'm on E. Which is an early rave anthem, I believe. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> got, got in very early in 78 there. <laughs> They graduated from Cherries to uh, yes. MDMA. I do like Detroit 442. Yeah, the football reference is soccer for you Americans. Yes. Uh, 442 being the best way to play. <laughs> is that what that's about? No. The Detroit soccer team? No, yeah. <laughs> Before there was even a team. I also really, I ask you guys your opinion on this. Cautious Lip, I really like, and it reminds me of the Velvet Underground. Yeah, it does have a bit of a, like a CBGB's post-punk art rock vibe. A bit of a droney thing going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's great. I really like that one. Yeah, 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 me too. It's got a Velvet's feel to it. As I said, they're, they're very much about looking back. Uh, these two albums, yeah, are partners, shall yeah, we say, for yeah, me. Yeah. And fair enough, I mean, they recorded them in a pretty short space of time, so why wouldn't they be? Yeah. Um, I should also point out that their first overseas gig, I meant to say this earlier, was in um, May in 77. Yeah. So they'd already graduated to doing gigs in England, in Bournemouth, actually. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty quick work. They kind of took off fairly fast, and I think that's down to Debbie. I mean, we'll talk about that a little bit more later, but mm. I think without Debbie, the band would not have amounted to yeah. as much as it did shall we say. Mm. Of those two albums, I think the band might well agree with you. Chris Stein said, the first couple of records were a little rough and punk-edged. We were kind of eclectic and all over the place. So he's, he's kind of grouping those two albums together as well, and they really are two peas in a pod. Mm. Shall we uh, head on to the uh, the signature album, perhaps? Mm. Well, I think we've got to talk about how we get to the third album, Parallel Lines, because I think everybody could see... Blondie's potential 
but they just needed tightening up. They needed slightly better songs. They needed sharpening up of image. Um, so who did they need? Well, <laughs> what are you driving at, Mark? The Australian who, who chap are you call? <laughs> called Mike Chapman, who had done a few things before. It wasn't his first rodeo. I think he was approached by uh, boss of Chrysalis at the time saying, look, we've just bought out Blondie's contract from um, the previous record label, and I'd like you to take a look at them. So he went and saw them play a couple of times, and I, his, his own words, he said he was blown away by them really impressed thought the songs were there thought everything was there and he could do something with them so uh, they got together had a bit of a meeting blondie played him some of the sort of rough tracks that they would had and he was like yeah we can make this work but it was a massive leap in terms of what they were used to mm, in terms of mm, uh, recording mm. process and uh, mike chapman in the studio because you'll be able to tell me graham the sorts of things that he had worked on well mike chapman was one half of this great songwriting duo chin and chapman who wrote all of those great songs for The Sweet, uh, Susie Quattro, Smokey, Smokey. Yeah. Even, even Racy. Racy. Well, interestingly, he wrote a song for Racy that became Oh Mickey for Tony Basil. For one person to have co-written Ballroom Blitz, Can the Can, Living Next Door to Alice, next door to Alice. and Stumbling In. Stumbling in. <laughs> How and, does one person do that? I mean, that like, person that was born in Nambour in Queensland. Yeah, yeah. I know. Where, where is Nambour it's in like Queensland? North Queensland. A bit of, it's, a, it's a fruit town as far as I'm aware, really? so that could be, that could be the it. connection. A That's big, the missing Big link. fruit area. Well, Nambour is like the Columbia of North Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you go to Nambour for the good stuff. <laughs> But yeah, born in Queensland, had been living in England for a long time before he kind of pitched up in, in America and had done a few things before. This predates his working with the Knack too, by the way, because this is around ah, the same yeah. time. Yeah. Um, so anyway, they get together, but he's kind of taken aback by their lack of proficiency musically. Yeah. I think it's fair to say. Did you see the actual quote from Chapman? He said, musically, they were the worst band I, I ever, ever worked, worked with. with. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, this is what mystifies me is because I think the, the suggestion was the drummer, Clem Burke, wasn't that great at keeping time. Mm. No, he was wild, but he wasn't that every, great at keeping time. Every time I saw him, I was just amazed at his performance. He was very visual and yeah, very he was, physical. He was mm. very visual. He was possibly the most exciting drummer I'd ever seen. I think for me, um, Jimmy Destry was the best musician mm, possibly, in the band yeah. at that stage anyway. By this point, they had Nigel Harrison on bass. Yep. English-born Nigel yep. Harrison. Chapman went on to say, having said that Blondie were the worst band he ever worked with, he said the only great musician among them was Frank, uh, Frankie Infante. Infante, yeah. Uh, he's an amazing guitarist. The rest of them were all over the bloody place. <laughs> if you can picture that being said with an Australian accent, possibly similar to mine. And as for the band, Debbie said, Aussie Mike had a real swagger to him. He looked very Hollywood with his aviator sunglasses and long white cigarette holder, but he had the rock and roll spirit. Of course. So that, He's from Nambour. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was rocking at Nambour style <laughs> for, the, for all that time. Well, so we're talking about parallel lines here. We are talking about the quintessential lines. Blondie album from September 1978. I, I reckon it's an absolute powerhouse of a pop album. Like the first three songs, we're talking first Cars album here. It's just like hanging mm. on the telephone one way or another and picture this. Mm. It's just like a one, two, three punch. But you can hear his influence on it. Like it was his idea to put the ringing telephone at the start of hanging on the telephone and he said, you know, it just gives the tension and then bang, it comes in. And you're right, it's a production trick and a technique, but it works 
mm. so well. Mm. He's doing yeah. backing vocals on this. I think he even played a little bit on it. Mm. I was going to say, they didn't mind their covers, did they, Blondie? They no, seemed to no. pick a cover for most of their albums. And they had uh, a couple in here with, uh, or more than a couple, hanging on the telephones, a cover. Uh, Jack Lee had recorded with his band The Nerves in yep. 1976. There's another Nerves song. Yeah, uh, another song called Will Anything Happen? Will Anything Happen, yeah. Is his. But Jack Lee went on to write a lot of hits. And I'm sure, Graham, you'll know more. Actually, no, I don't. I knew of the nerves. But, yeah. Uh, he went on to be quite a successful songwriter. One of his songs was Come Back and Stay for Paul Young many oh, years really? later. He wrote a couple of songs that featured on the massive No Parley Paul, Paul yeah, Young yeah, album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say also that this had six singles on it, which tells you <laughs> how massively successful it was. It was a UK number one album, a US number six, yep. an Australian yep. number two. I just remember seeing it and being blown away by the cover. Everything about it looked cool. You um, you bought the record, didn't I you? I did have the record. And I mean, I may have been in England when Heart of Glass came out. Yeah, yeah, And I yeah. think, it, I, yes, I possibly 79? was. Yeah. yeah. And that was a later single, fourth yeah. single. So you kind of think you've, you're holding that back for your fourth single. Yeah, yeah, that's I right. I mentioned the first three songs are all great. Mm. And I didn't even mention Heart of Glass and Sunday Girl, which were two huge <laughs> <Yeah>. singles, <laughs> probably their biggest singles. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, in England, that was a, that was a double A side. Mm. Um, I'm Gonna Love You also was a Buddy Holly song. So there's a oh, yeah, bunch yeah, of yeah. covers on here. I don't care what you told me. distinctly remember you coming around to my house with the Parallel Lines album and, <laughs> and playing, playing it on our like 1950s brown box record player. Iphonium, I think you had. <laughs> <laughs> Here's one of the ones you had to crank it Yeah, on yeah, and you had to put your ear in the speaker. Pr- pretty much. And, and hold a dog. <laughs> um, <laughs> pretty much, and just like looking at the cover of that album. And I'd seen record covers before because I had a couple of Gary Glitter records. Yeah. Um, and you also had the wheels on the bus go round and round, <laughs> 12 inch. Yeah, we were both 14 or 15 at the time. So I was about to 14. graduate from the wheels on the bus. Yeah, I was 14. No, I don't think you were for some time, actually. <laughs> but yeah, I do remember buying the album and just, it was the sound of, well, I didn't really even know what it was the sound of at that time, but mm. it, it, it sounded like the future. But it was also easy. It was very digestible. There was nothing particularly tricky on there. Fade Away and Radiate is probably the most kind of introspective, unusual song with Robert mm. Fripp Robert on guitar. Apparently he really wanted to play on their record. And yeah. he badgered them yeah, to play on yeah, it. And yeah. Mike Chapman's like, oh, what the hell's he going to do? But it ended up being <laughs> yeah. quite good. Uh, yeah. Better than quite good. Should we talk about Heart of Glass? Because as an 80s song, well, it's not an 80s song, but anyway, mm. it seems to be remembered as an 80s song. Yeah, yeah. It's probably right up there. And and the demo that Graham you'll play or the earlier version of it you'll play. Oh, the on, disco song. The disco song, which, From which they had played to Mike Chapman and he went, well, that's a good song, but it's not working as a reggae thing. Mm. Mm. Let's try it a few different ways. And Mike Chapman said to, to Deborah Harry, what music is exciting you at the moment? What's giving you the most buzz? And she went, Donna Summer. So he said, well, let's try doing it as a disco song. <laughs> So the story goes that they, it ended up being a kind of a, a melding of craft work and Donna Summer. Disco was kind of a little bit unfashionable amongst cool New York mm, bands at the time. Yeah, yeah. You'd had that Chicago thing where they 
Disco Sucks burnt all the records and all this sort of backlash against disco. But they were decided, they had decided that disco was cool and they were going to do a disco record. Mm -hmm. And they did a fantastic disco yeah, record. Yeah, and it was a huge success. Yeah, across the board. I mean, yeah. even just that little intro, it's, you just know what's coming. Once again, production. And I think the band decided that they were going to do disco because you weren't supposed to do disco. Yeah, and, well, the Ramones said Blondie had sold out by doing disco. Yeah, yeah. Kind of tongue-in-cheek, possibly, because yeah. they were their friends. Well, but Chris, still. Chris said it made us punk in the face of punk. And so... What's more punk than to do something you shouldn't do? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly and, right. And that's a recurring theme of subsequent Blondie albums, just doing mm. whatever the hell they want to do. Yeah. At the, at the time in 79, I remember friends of mine asking me, like they knew the sort of music I liked, and they were like, why do you like this disco song? And I remember saying, oh, they're just being ironic. They're, they're, you, know. you said, but, Disco Graham yeah. likes this tune. <laughs> <laughs> I was referred to as Disco Graham at the time. <laughs> but yeah. Have you still got that, that jacket with your name on the back? <laughs> with my name on the back. The silk jacket? <laughs> Dis Disco Grey? Absolutely. Um, um, yeah, go on. I was just going to say the lyrics again. Really, there's some really great oh, yes. lyrics and some really terrible lyrics. Uh, and uh, you're probably going to say the same ones as me, Graham. But okay, well, you go for I'm going to talk about Picture This. Yeah. <laughs> um, go on. Um, I will give you my finest hour, the one I spent watching you shower. Now, I was, for the life of me, thought that's got to be a guy writing those lyrics. <laughs> but that's Debbie's lyrics. And then once again, that's kind of a real masculine, kind of strange thing to say yeah. in an awkward way. But mm. then she'll also refer to something, a photo in my wallet. Most women wouldn't refer to their wallet. Yep. So yeah. it's kind of weird how she inverts that sort of stuff. Mm, yeah. I also want to talk about Just Go Away. The lyrics for that are just terrible. Before you do, can I just I want to go on picture this a bit longer. A bit more you want to have a picture <laughs> yeah, of this. Yeah. I think that the song is about she loves the look of the guy, so she's saying that a picture of him is all she really it's needs. better than real life. It's better than real life, yeah. But what makes me laugh is later on in the song she admonishes him for almost being on the skids if it wasn't his job at the garage. <laughs> Which is a really odd thing to say to someone. Just like, I think you're wonderful, you're you're amazing, but listen, you've got no prospects, basically. If it wasn't for your job at the garage. Yeah, if it wasn't <laughs> for that job, I would have nothing to do with you. But it has the strangest final lyric to a song ever. She says, get a pocket computer, try and do what you used to do. What did he used to do with a pocket computer? I think that's what a calculator used to be called. I know, pocket it's like, you know, little Casio things. It's almost... The song ends at that point. Yeah, like, yeah. It sounds like there was more to the song, but um, the producer just pulled the plug at that point. Possibly. <laughs> well, just because the lyrics were getting so bad. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I loved it. Oh, it's a great... I love the song. Look, it can't mm. compete with Just Go Away. Don't lose your Medicaid cool. Because, of course, cool rhymes with fool. This is like year 10 <laughs> Poetry. It's not a great song. It's a funny, funny one to, yeah, to finish yeah. up on the album because the yeah. album is pretty much front to back an absolute yeah. corker yeah. and still stands up now. Mark, you mentioned um, Year 10 Poetry or Year 10 Assignments. Given that you had been known to appropriate... Pilfer? Pilfer. Pass off as my own? <laughs> Pass off as your own lyrics by post-punk bands in your assignments in Year 10. And get an A+. plus. <laughs> 
for it. Was it That's Entertainment by The Jam? And uh, uh, Isolation from Joy Division. Um, there's a couple in there. So tell me, why did Debbie Harry's poetry never make it to well, your homework? Because your finest hour watching your shower is not going to get you an A. Yeah, I suppose so. In year 11 English. So your just go away assignment at the um, comment down the bottom, come and see me. <laughs> <laughs> Please try harder. Anyway. What do we think of Parallel Lines, Patty? You haven't said too much. No, you, no. Where well, were you on Parallel Lines? Yeah. When I, I brought it round to your house? Yeah, yeah. How did you feel? Back then, there were three or four songs that I loved and the rest of it just didn't have much impact at all. And I think the fact that there were five different songwriters within the band at the time meant that there was necessarily going to be quite a diversity of song styles. And it is a really choppy, mm. changey kind of album. And yeah, I think. The singles are all fantastic. and All six of them. Five of the six. And, uh, yeah, so Heart of Glass is just an absolutely astounding song, I think, for the time. Mm. As that kind of melding of two or three different styles. Um, as you well, say, you've still got that 60s kind of feel. I yeah, don't think they've yeah. left that and that garage power pop, but it's got something else. Mm. I, I think Mike Chapman has a hell of a lot to do with this. Yeah, really yeah, absolutely. Do. I think... It's an extraordinary production, songwriting, yeah, feat. It's not an album that I would listen to very often, but I'd certainly listen to my favourite songs off it. Hey, you know? I don't know. I thought um, I Know But I Don't Know, which is written by Frank Infante, is kind of like Iggy Pop's I Want to Be Your Dog. doesn't uh, sound like uh, it, but uh, it sounds like if they wanted to do something... Well, he does re- refer to himself as not her pet. Yeah, as a so, pet, well, yeah. Or well, she, he, you know what I mean. And Jimmy Destry wrote an absolute classic in 1159, which wasn't a single. It's 1159 and I won't stay alive. I thought 95% of the songs were great. Hmm. I honestly hold this album up as their best album, even though at the time... I thought Eat to the Beat was better. In retrospect now, listening to all their albums together, I think Parallel Lines is is the quintessential Blondie album. I think my point that I was attempting to make is that they're a great singles band. If you were to buy Mm. one Blondie album, Mm. unlike a lot of bands we've talked about, you would buy Best of Blondie, whatever it was, Mm. um, that came out just before their kind of golden period ended. Because it's got every single on it and it's got a few extras. I just don't think they're a, a solid album band, but the singles are phenomenal. But this mm. Parallel Lines is possibly the exception to that. But over the six albums that we're going to touch on, it's the exception mm. because I, I think there's a lot of weak songs on the other albums or filler, mm. if you like. Mm. But that's not to say, hey, I mean, a band that puts out six albums is not going to have everything front to back. Yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, they, yeah, they did release the best of Blondie in, I think, uh, 1981 or, or 1982. Yeah, so. you were saying it was just, just at the end of the first part of their career. Mm. Yeah, so they pretty that much third, had covered everything. And yeah. those songs, every song on there is great. Yeah. So were they the first post-punk band to release a best of compilation? Possibly. Like, like 81, 82 is, is really early. They were possibly over by that stage because they'd started mm. so early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the best of came out before their final album. Yeah, so yeah, yeah you're like, saying well, confidence this, from the record company This right final there. album obviously isn't going to have any hits on it, so let's put out a best of yeah. um, just to completely scupper it. But, uh, yeah, we could talk about Parallel Lines all day, but I think mm. the listening is is what you need to be doing with that one. Mm. There's nothing. There's not a bad song on there apart from maybe just go away. Um, should we move on to Eat to the Beat, which came out almost a year later, September 79. Yep. End of '79. Yeah, and I remember, I remember buying this as well and being and loving it. And that's still pretty early in the piece. 
you know, in, mm. in musical yep. terms. Massive hit again, number one in the UK, 17 in America, number nine in Australia, four singles, all of which were great. Also had a little track called Call Me in between, which wasn't on the album. Yeah. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Yep. Mike Chapman obviously got the gig again. Yep. Why wouldn't he? It might be worth mentioning, like just really setting the scene for how big Blondie were prior to the recording of, of Eat to the Beat, that, that I think Parallel Lines sold 16 million copies is the figure that I found, and it might be more than that, I've seen figures bigger than that. And Blondie were on the cover of Rolling Stone. They were one of the biggest bands on the planet. And when they did their big interview for Rolling Stone, the first thing Debbie said to the interviewer was, why didn't you do this three years ago? <laughs> and the interviewer, Jamie James, who I've never heard of actually, but but he said, I can tell the moment Debbie lays eyes on me, she hates my guts. <laughs> so that's Rolling Stone and Blondie and the kind of difficult relationship they had. But yeah, just in terms of the kind of pressure on them when they went into the studio for Eat to the Beat, because it could easily have been a massive flop and a, you know, a huge anticlimax. Well, Heart of Glass is a, is a cultural moment, if you like. So maybe that's where a lot of that pressure comes. It, it went bigger than just a chart hit. Mm. It, it signifies a whole lot of things. And if you watch the video, she is just at her peak in that video for me. So I think anything afterwards is going to be difficult to match up to. But having said that, back to that album, I think it's, it's a good, it's a great album. I really, really like it. Mm, I liked I it a lot it when it came out. The singles... You know, Dreaming, Union City Blue, Atomic, they're great songs. Great <laughs> and even songs. the hardest part, which is very funky, yeah. the funkiest they ever got. But, yeah, once again, you know, there's some interesting things in there, like the song Shayla. It's kind of a sad, poignant kind of song. Accidents Never Happened, which is a Jimmy Destry song. I really like that as well. And once again, it's got that weird kind of edgy lyric to it. It is a bit of Parallel Lines Part 2. Mm. I mean, mm. I guess that's what they were expected to do, and you're talking about a year mm. later. I think it's interesting, the story, if we can just talk about Call Me, because it came out between the third and fourth singles kind of as an independent thing with Giorgio Moroto. It's the theme tune to American Gigolo with Richard Gere, the film. Yep. came out in January 1980. <music> the story goes that Giorgio Moroto wanted something like a craftworky kind of thing, being an electronic music producer as he was, and ended up getting Blondie in to do the uh, recording the, after uh, Debbie had done her vocals and then replaced a lot of it with session musicians. And um, the keyboard player, whose name eludes me now... Oh, Harold Faltermeyer. Harold Faltermeyer, who came to later fame from uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Axel F. Yeah, the theme. Yeah. And so um, Jimmy had to play this, the solo at live shows. And the, ba the band weren't keen on playing the song because obviously they hadn't had as much involvement in it, but it was a massive hit again. So they couldn't really get away from it. 
Yeah, it's interesting that um, no Blondie member actually played on the song, yet it's become a Blondie standard. Yeah, yeah. They've had to play that song for their entire career. I think they played some <laughs> yeah. stuff on it, and I think Giorgio removed some stuff and kept some. I heard that Giorgio said that the musicians were all yeah. over the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think yeah, they yeah. took some out and left some in and replaced yeah. it with bits and pieces, but right. nobody's 100% sure. But to, hey, they're going to claim it as their song, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is which they should do. I think it was. I think it might have been the number one again for them. Another yeah. one. Yeah, it was a huge hit. Yeah, but this but, album did well. This album was a great yeah. album. Patrick, did yeah. you come across it in your? Uh, yes, I see it as being fairly similar, as you say, to Parallel Lines. That it's like an encyclopedia of kind of upbeat pop styles or pop rock styles, mm. and you know, there's the punky eat to the beat. Reggae, Die Young, Stay Pretty. That's a great song. Uh, Rockish, Victor, and all the singles. And I like most Blondie albums, I've found it kind of hard to settle into because it's chopping and changing between styles and you kind of wonder what the kind of core philosophy of the band is, if that's not too pretentious a term to use about, you know, like a pop band. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, so apart from the singles, nothing really feels essential to me. But Atomic is a song that I have always absolutely loved. And I remember watching it on the Australian Music Show Countdown and my mum kind of walking past and watching the film clip and saying, sometimes I worry about your generation. And I don't know why she would have watched hours and hours and hours of this TV show because the TV was in the lounge room, Countdown was on 6pm Sundays. Like, she would have watched probably half of every song that had ever been on Countdown. <laughs> but the Atomic by Blondie film clip was the one that, that, that just... Pushed her over the edge. Had, yeah, had her really tut-tutting. Well, Graham's so, mum and your mum may have been able to have a few words together because your yeah, mum was yeah. always despairing, you know, about <laughs> what you would listen to. <laughs> yeah, she, well, she was, she was always worried. I think she was worried about Blondie too. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, there you go. Yeah. The fact that Call Me came out as a single in January 1980, according to, to my notes, mm. came out as a single in January 1980 and Atomic came out as a single in February 1980. So consecutive months to have Call Me and Atomic, like mm. that's a that's all killer, no filler. In yeah. terms Blondie of, were ruling the roost and yeah, the airwaves yeah, for yeah. those and, couple of years. And Call Me was uh, six weeks at number one in the US, I think, and it was the number one song for the year in the US. That's mm. like... That's huge. <laughs> it's We Are The World huge. Yeah. <laughs> did, so did either of you also know that Eat To The Beat was one of the very first video albums? Mm, I was going to mention oh, that. They yeah, did yeah. a clip for every song on the album, which, you know, if you want to look at Debbie, it's great because you get plenty of that, mm, um, mm. which was kind of a, a unique thing to do. I don't yeah. know, well, I don't think MTV had started at that point, so. No, it hadn't started yet, but. It's important to point out that, like, I remember watching it at the time, from start to finish. Did you have the video, the VCR? Yeah, this was a VCR. Yeah. And, but it was pretty much just the band miming to each song right. in different locales. So, so it's... That's what video clips were in those days. <laughs> this is pre-Russell Mulcahy. Yeah, yeah well, this is what I'm saying. There, there wasn't, uh, you know, the story sw sweeping arc. majestic shots. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty much a couple of cameras pointing at the band. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was good. It was good to see Debbie. Yes, never get enough of Debbie. You never get enough of Debbie. 
No. And just in terms of the mammothness of Call Me, Deborah Harry ended up on The Muppet Show singing Call Me. Okay, well, here we are at the finale, and I bet you know what that means. Debbie Harry! That's right, Debbie Harry! Yeah! Uh, which That's tells right. you about the kind of ubiquity. If, to uh, Statler and Waldorf. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what they thought of it. Yeah, they the guys on the that. balcony may yeah, not have been I impressed. Have liked it. I suspect they weren't. But um, yeah, uh, Debbie also sang uh, Rainbow Connection with Kermit on the yeah. same shows. I think Statler and Waldorf were more Joy Division kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Big Cure Joy Division fans, yeah. Yeah, mm. I believe so. I'm thinking Bauhaus, but you <laughs> might be right. <laughs> Probably Bauhaus, yeah. Um, should we move on to November 1980s? Auto-American. This album I find really interesting because the highs, the tidiest highs are, are great and yeah. the lows are, are pretty much, uh, yeah, seashells, very well, low. I'm interested <laughs> to find out what you guys' uh, take is on the first song. Europa? Europa. Well, I'm going to just quote something from Rolling Stone's review at the time. I don't think Rolling Stone and Blondie had a great relationship <laughs> because they slammed this album. I think they gave it one out of five or something. But yeah, the yeah. reviewer at the time reviewed the intro Europa and called it promiscuously ethnic as a kind of a slur. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm trying to work out what that means. Uh, I still well, don't know. As a slur, it's an, it's, an, it's an interesting one. Yeah, <laughs> but it's not, well, it, the promiscuous is never usually used as a term of praise. Yeah, so yeah, I don't yeah. think he liked it. Oh, well, I know he didn't like it, but um, yeah, it was a bit of a strange, I think they're kind of veering into kind of experimentation and art, mm. art rock or trying maybe to change the way they were perceived. This articulate conception has only brought us all more of the same. Thoughtlessly locked into phase two gridlock. November 1980, so I suppose it's roughly a year after Eat to the Beat, which was a year after Parallel Lines. Yep. A massive hit again. Number yep. three, UK, seven, US, eight in Australia. So they, they really couldn't do anything wrong, but I think they were starting to test people's patience. Wow, I, that's exactly what I wrote there. I wrote... Now Blondie is successful, they get to record an orchestra. They were allowed to test the patience of their fans. Oh, you know, I just saw good. your notes before. Yeah, okay. I just stole <laughs> that line. You stole but line. when you've got things like a track from Camelot, the musical in there with Follow Me, that's that's unusual. Um, there's a few weird things in there. I used the word weird and underlined it. There you are. Mike Chapman, again, produced it. But this time was in L.A., so maybe that had something to do with it. The yeah, band got yeah, shipped yeah. out to L.A. and got to record in the sunshine, yeah, yeah. being a quintessential New York band, which yeah, was yeah, one of the yeah. things Mike Chapman said about them. Well, the, uh, the genesis of, of, of Tide is High is interesting because apparently they asked the specials, as in the English band, the specials, mm. to play on it. But as Debbie says... But they couldn't or wouldn't, I don't remember which. And so instead they enlisted a 30-piece orchestra, four percussionists, jazz horns and a mariachi band. Well, the horn section was from the Johnny Carson show, for example. So they're talking about super-duper LA Mm, pro musicians here. There's a cover of a 1967 song by the Paragons. It's not an original song, which I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's a fantastic song. Yeah, yeah. The absolutely. two songs on there that stand out are the two singles, which is mm. "Tide Is High" and, of course, "Rapture." Yeah. We'll talk about that. In and minute. they they couldn't be less similar in some ways. Yeah, and the whole album is a bit of a mishmash yeah, of stuff. Yeah. It, you can sort of see the writings on the wall a little mm. bit, maybe mm. at yeah. this point. Can I say just one more thing about the "Tide Is High"? That Sean Lennon 
said the one modern song I remember John Lennon listening to was The Tide Is High by Blondie, which he played constantly. When I hear that song, I see my father unshaven, his hair pulled back into a ponytail, dancing to and fro in a worn-out pair of denim shorts, with me at his feet trying my best to coordinate tiny limbs. <laughs> I just think that's an amazing well, image. I think Sean's wrong, and I'll tell you why. Because <laughs> I've got a quote previously that John Lennon sent Ringo Starr a postcard about Heart of Glass, saying this is great, simple and easy, it's brilliant. So where were you, Sean, when Heart of Glass came out? Maybe he wasn't born. Yeah, <laughs> maybe he was t- <laughs> That's no excuse. No excuses. That old line. That old line. But um, Titus High and Rapture both went to number one, I think, didn't they? They were both, mm. both, yeah. both big, yeah. big hits and yeah. both fantastic songs. Mm. And uh, the record company has said, we don't hear any hits. We don't so, hear well, any hits. Maybe, they, number were, ones? maybe <laughs> they weren't wrong about the rest of the album because it is a strange album and it's yeah, not the easiest yeah, yeah. to listen to. It's it's kind of revered now as a bit of a lost classic and maybe was a little harshly dismissed at the time, but it's not the easiest. Mm. Um, though I love Rapture and I think the fact that they got into hip-hop and, and the whole nascent rap scene mm. at the time yeah. is to their credit. They did record this after The Clash had done The Magnificent Seven, so they were the... Second group, second group to not do the first. white rap, each a heart out Eminem. But did um, Magnificent Seven make it to number one in the it US? It did not, but it was pr- it was recorded before that. Mm, it's yeah, the same yeah, sort yeah. of thing. They were both those bands were kind of interested in what was going on. They were look going to these uh, the, the hip hop shows where people uh, Chris and Debbie talk about going to a show with them Fab Five Freddy, yeah, and seeing people just getting up on the mic and this endless show would just go on there were no breaks it was just a beat someone else would get up and rap and it was kind of a party and they just really liked the fact that these kids were expressing themselves with what they had and uh, they were kind of magpies in that sense but they picked up it's a fantastic song and a lot of rappers love it (laughs) and sampled it subsequently too oh the interesting thing about rapture is that it's basically one chord e minor but there is another chord progression that's very unusual and it's actually quite new wave, I think, mm. that uh, it comes in just before she sings the word rapture. So it goes F, A, C, E minor, F, A, C, G, E minor. And that's not a standard funk or R&B chord progression. Mm. Hip-hop acts like the Sugar Hill Gang or Grandmaster Flash, they wouldn't have used chords like that. Five, five, ready, told me everybody's Grandmaster Flash sampled Rapture later, which is kind of ironic. Not that much later, about about a year or so later on uh, Adventures on the Wheels of Steel, I think. And there was so much going on in the course of the song. I mean, for... <laughs> the for, the, the for late song, lyrics alone. For a song that was in some ways meant to be a tribute to Sheik, for yeah. it to feature like a really kind of heavy guitar lead break towards the end. There's a lot going on mm. in that song if you listen to it with the headphones and you know there's a it's really it's, oh, it's a great production. I, I love the lyrics. I love the fact she's kind of freestyling, if I can use yes. that term, just about whatever is in front of you. And mm. that was an early rap thing. People just talked about, you know, their car that they didn't have or where they yeah. lived or what they were gonna do now or whatever. And she's just making up stuff as she goes. Or an on. alien. Or an alien or if exactly. you can make Subaru's call, you're doing pretty well. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Interesting album. Um, inconsistent, shall yeah. we say? I like Live It Up, Funky Number, which is mm-hmm. not to be confused with the Australian band Mental <laughs> as Anything's song Live It Up, which was a big hit in Australia and the UK and which was produced by Richard Gotterer. 
Oh, really? And the circle is the complete. Circle is complete. <laughs> Um, and the other little bit of trivia, um, T-Birds uh, featured backing vocals by Flo and Eddie, who okay. sang backing vocals on Love My Way, Psychedelic mm-hmm. Furs. So, yeah, there were some interesting kind of combinations of things going on there. I do love the idea of a band doing whatever they want to do, regardless of their record company's expectations or the public's expectations. But with Blondie, I never quite trusted their instincts because they were really erratic. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, just in terms of like some of their punky choices, as in, you know, we're not going to do what, what we're told, ended up resulting in fairly conservative, traditional-sounding songs. Mm. And, yeah, so, I mean, Faces, for instance, has you know, quite a generic kind of quality to it. So, yeah, again, I think with... The singles. You wouldn't go too far wrong if you were just stuck with the singles. Um, are we going to move on to the end of Blondie? You the want to talk Blondie. about the solo well, album, Patrick? Or the end of Blondie. In that period. In that period. Yeah, yes. yeah, they yeah. They got yeah. back together in 1999, let's yeah. not forget. But mm. we're reaching a period where they're about to call it a day. Deborah had done a solo album, mm-hmm. uh, did a solo album called Cuckoo. What, when, when did that come out? In 1981. Mm-hmm with Niall Rogers and Bernard Edwards from Chic, and then Blondie got together for their sixth album, The Hunter, in May 1982. By then, I think the writing was more or less on the wall, and it wasn't a great experience for them recording the album. Mike Chapman said it felt like it was coming to an end. The biggest single was um, Island of Lost Souls. was a solid hit in the UK and Australia. Yeah, I mean, I think they just run out of steam. Six albums is a pretty long cycle and the, there aren't many bands whose sixth album is much a cracker. <laughs> Not over, over six years either. Mm, yeah. yeah. And the kind of pressure they'd been under, particularly Debbie as the face of... She was the face of all sorts of things, you know, <laughs> fashion, mm. post-punk. She was, um, she'd acted in, you know, the Union City film. Immortalised uh, by Andy Warhol. Yeah. So it was just relentless pressure. And Chris Stein got really ill with a rare disorder of the autoimmune system. And, you know, I think it was certainly time for them to, um, to, mm. to, to call it a day. And I don't think any of the three of us would have been too sorry at the time to kind of hear that they were calling it quits because I'd stopped listening to them. Mm. By that stage, I think Island of Lost Souls is a song, for instance, that didn't do much for me at all. And I never heard it. I didn't hear any of this album okay. at the time. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that they recorded a song for the James Bond movie, which wasn't used, which is a bit depressing, For Your Eyes Only. Yeah. Well, having said that, but I thought, therefore, Your Eyes Only, it's not great, but it's much better than the Sheena Easton song. I think Blondie had been under the impression that they'd been asked to write a song for the soundtrack Mm. and instead I think they just wanted Debbie to sing on the song that Sheena Easton ended up singing on yeah so they had some confusion but they didn't they didn't didn't rate the song obviously Mm. um I've heard this album described as moody dark and dense and I think that kind of sums up it sounds a bit depressed 
Mm. Clem mm. Burke, the drummer, said we should have just redone one of our first albums and that would have been a massive hit because people are just caught up to what we were doing back yeah, then. Yeah, it's, yeah. There's something to be said for that because, you know, it does take time, but he's probably that, that right. That would be a unique thing to do. Yeah, <laughs> just to go back to doing your your uh, old stuff almost. Our, our yeah. new album is our first album redone. Yeah, well, in that style anyway. But it still did well. I mean, you know, it's despite what we're saying, it was still mm. a chart hit around yeah, the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you're right. I think the writing was on the wall for the band. And also, I mean, the fashions of the time. She had been around for a long time. She wasn't, I mean, Debbie was 32 or 33 when she became a star. But I fell in love with her. mm, Mm. She'd been around for a few years now and she wasn't the fresh face that she had been. There were other bands coming through that were, you know, the exciting new sound, the kind of electronic pop sound from the UK. Your uh, human leagues and your ultravoxes and your simple minds and so on. Mm. So they were looking a bit kind of old hat, I think. And, you know, I mean, that's just the natural regeneration of rock music. The cycle, that's right. Graham, you were going to make a point that Debbie kind of being the focus of the group that she'd always done on on her own terms. And you alluded to that in your introduction, Mm. that I think she had a real unique approach to being the lead singer in a band. She wasn't anybody's, you know, backseat. She was, you know, a tough, yeah. tough chick. I had heard a rumour, I don't know whether this is true, I read somewhere that Linda Ronstadt had seen Debbie Harry perform on the Midnight Special and it would have been 1978, 79 around there. And she saw the way she performed and realised that there was a change in the air and that was why she went in doing the New Wave album that she did. Mm. But I imagine a lot of people would have done that at the time. A lot of female singers would have saw Debbie Harry and gone, oh, this is great and this isn't how women normally perform. And Mm. I think she would have gone on to inspire people like Madonna, uh, Shirley Manson from Garbage, uh, Karen O from the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. You can see Debbie Harry's fingerprints all over the place. And, uh, And I think there's something to be said for Debbie Harry being more than just a, a singer in a pop band. It's like she was she was part of the zeitgeist. Mm. She was an iconic singer. I mean, there were other strong female singers before her. There was Susie Quattro, you know, the Runaways, different people like that. Mm-hmm. But I think she really took it, as I said, that's why I find her lyrics interesting because they're not submissive lyrics. They're not about poor me, what am I going to do? Mm. They're, they're very in your face. She's taking the lead. And, you know, there was a whole slew of new wave singers, if you like. Susie from Susie and the Banshees, you know, even Mm. Penetration, other bands, Slits. Women had a real place in post-punk. I mean, Blondie are almost not post-punk because they predate it and they come out of the American version of punk anyway. Mm -hmm. But they're still considered, and Debbie in particular, is still considered an icon of that scene because of her look, super cool, take-no-shit attitude and absolutely killed it. For the six years, they were like a force. They were an absolute unstoppable object and she was right out the front of that. Mm. 